0: Do you remember your first trip to the planetarium? Probably with your third grade class. More excited to leave school than actually learn anything about science. You know who you were. You find your seat, impatiently waiting for the show to start, ignoring the withering look of your teacher. And then... Wow. Incredible. How can we be so small so special. That is, I believe, how the wise men must have felt. These magi got quite the star show themselves, except it was just one star, one bright, magnificent, piercing, brilliant ball of fire. And boy, did they bet a lot on that star. But just like the one they were traveling to see, this star stood out as something special. This one beckoned, follow me. And what a payoff. When they arrived in Bethlehem, they asked, Where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And it got me thinking, is worship a little different the harder the journey to get there? Struggling along the road with others? The type of trip that tests your faith and breaks your back? What's that worship like? I can't speak for the wise men. Maybe they shouted hallelujah, or they knelt in quiet reverence. We've all walked our own difficult journeys. And when we got to the other side, we all felt it. The joy we had to fight for tasted just a bit sweeter. And for that bright morning star, the one that caught you in awe when you saw it, well, what else can you do but rejoice when you realize that the journey was always leading you to Jesus.
1: Well, good morning, Crosspoint. If you would do me a favor and grab a copy of God's Word, whether it's a hard copy or digital, and find your way to Matthew chapter 2, I'd appreciate that. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. So today we're talking about the wise men. Now, I can already hear some of you in just kind of writhing, like, the wise men weren't there. The wise men weren't there. And you're right. You're right. They weren't there on the day of his birth. So then why do we talk about the wise men? Why do we always see wise men in nativities? Well, I'll, I'll give you guys a little bit of a, oh, you can unclench. There's a reason why we talk about them at nativity time. There's a reason we talk about them in Advent and all of that. So First of all, Advent just simply means the arrival of someone important. Nativity means the occasion of someone's birth. So when we're celebrating the advent of the nativity, we're celebrating the arrival of the most important of births. And while the wise men weren't there on the day of his birth, the day of his birth is when the star did appear. The day of his birth is when, for the first time, That glorious moment, that glorious light began to shine. So this picture that we often think of, of the wise men standing around baby Jesus, that's not quite what it was. When we look at the text, we look at the story, this is more so uh, Mary and Joseph at this point had been living in Bethlehem for a couple of years. At this point, they were no longer in the manger. There was no, or in the stable, there's no longer baby Jesus in a manger. By this point, they probably built him an actual bed, right? Joseph was a carpenter. They had a home. At this point, Jesus was a toddler. But we talk about this at this time of year, because that's when the star began to shine. That's when their journey began was on that night. And so, while traditionally, nativities tend to have the wise men kind of further off, on their way to, the, to that moment, to that manger scene, and kind of over time, we've moved them closer and closer and closer until they're right there. The journey still started that night, which is why it's still a part of Advent, why it's still a part of this whole conversation. So if you'll look with me, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So the whole thing that started them on this journey was a star. I don't know about you, but if I see a star in the sky, it doesn't mean I pack my bags and go traveling somewhere. Now, granted, I don't know the stars that well, right? I got the Big Dipper, and that's about it. These guys, the wise men, the word here would have actually been, they're the magi. Now, magi were a specific kind of people. They're not just wise people. They're not even kings. We talk about we three kings, right? They're not kings, but they would have been considered that as far as the amount of influence and authority they had. These magi was actually part of a class system that what, who they were was they were very educated scholars. They were considered the brightest of the nation where they come from. And they would have come from somewhere over towards the Medes and Persian Babylonian area, most likely. Do we know that for fact? Well, by the use of the word magi is what we most, is most commonly uh, assumed it's from that region because that's where the word magi is kind of referring to that caste system. So for those who may be a little unfamiliar about what this system was, you have Babylon, right? They were taken over by the Medes and Persians, and this system was basically established for counsel and for ruling. And so some famous people you may know of is Daniel was one of them, pretty high up in that system. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been fairly high up in that system, right? Because they were alive when Babylon fell, and then they were kind of drafted more or less into this class. So when they were uh, being, going through their education, all this class, they're also learning, They're learning about stars, they're learning about science as much as they know, they're learning about history, they're just very well-learned people. One of the things they're also learning about is the religions of the people that they govern. And so you have Daniel, who would have been teaching, who would have been showing others who his God was, pretty high up, probably pretty good influence on those underneath him as far as religion and as far as those things. And so it's very likely that these guys, as the Magi, as people who keep in mind at this point, not all the Jews came back to Israel. If you didn't know, there was a season in Israel where they were all kind of kicked out, and then some came back. Not all of them. There were still some living abroad in that region. So this belief in God, this God of the Old Testament, still would have been known and talked about. And it's fairly likely that when they saw this star, which, by the way, wouldn't have been just some random star in the sky, right? There's something significant about this star. We don't know for sure what it was. It could have been some weird planetary alignment thing that was bright. Some speculate that. It could have been some really bright brand-new star. It could have been an explosion of some kind in the sky, of, of some kind of nebulous something. Some even speculate that it was the, the glory of God of the angels that sh- showed through the sky. There's a lot of different ideas. doesn't really matter what it was. It was something significant. Significant enough that it likely brought to their mind Numbers 24. Numbers 24, 17 specifically says this, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far off in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. This passage is specifically, you have Balaam, for those who aren't familiar with the story, you have in the book of Numbers. You have this guy, Balaam, who was a seer, and this guy, Balak, who was a king. And Balak's like, hey, Balaam, get over here. I want you to curse the people of Israel, because they've been kind of taking everyone out. I'm kind of scared they're going to take us out, so I want you to curse them for me. And Balaam's like, well, I mean, whatever God says, I don't know. And he tries and basically long story short every time he opens his mouth he can't curse them but he blesses them and one of the things he says in that blessing is that this prophecy that there will be a star rise from Jacob that there will be a scepter from Israel a scepter is a symbol of of a ruler of a king so these magi see the star up in the bright sky and they begin to wonder, begin to look, begin to go through their texts, begin to go through their scrolls of all they have, and they come to the conclusion that this star, this passage, these things line up, and they start this journey. This would have been a very long journey. This is pre-roads, pre-cars, right? Your most reliable transportation back then was a camel or a donkey. This would have been quite the undertaking. As far as how many, were there three, were there 12, were there 80, were there, we don't know. It's plural. There could have been two. There could have been a thousand. Don't know. Long story short, it's a group. But if you look at the text, verse 2, Where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Think about how significant that is, that these gentlemen, these high-ranking officials, highly educated, highly respected, likely very wealthy individuals, and they travel over a thousand miles to find themselves here. Not because of some, "oh, look, it's a pretty star. Everyone, look, it's the star. But because they understand that that star meant something. They understand that the star signified someone was coming. Someone was coming or perhaps was already here. And in this case, he was already born. But it signified someone greater than them was about to appear because they come to worship him. They don't come to see him. They don't come to meet him, to greet him, to build diplomatic relationships. They come to worship him. And the word that's used for worship is the idea of your going to publicly show honor and reverence to someone who is superior to you. And that's their journey. That's their mission. Think about the humility that that takes. In their life, they would have been considered pretty high up amongst everyone. Most everyone in their presence, they're not superiors. Most everyone is inferior to them. But these men come with the assumption that they are coming to see one who is superior to them. So this is our first point if you're jotting down some notes. Joy starts with humbly acknowledging that God is greater than you. Now, we can speculate. Did they know that this guy is the Savior of the world? Well, they would have known he was Messiah. They would have known that he was come to be king based on the Old Testament prophecies. Did they know he was God in the flesh? Not sure. But they knew he was something significant. And they knew that this God of the Jews, this God of the Old Testament, had promised a Messiah for thousands of years, time and time and time again, depending on how you look at them, There's 300, 500, there's basically hundreds of prophecies of the Old Testament that are all fulfilled by Christ, except for the ones pertaining to his second coming, which if you didn't know he's coming back, and that's going to be great. But right now we're talking about the first coming, and he fulfilled every prophecy about that. And these guys would have been learned. They would have, if not known all of them, they certainly would have known many of them. And they come to submit themselves to the one ordained by the God of the heavens. Now, this time of year, we talk a lot about joy, right? We sang a song, Joy to the World. But what is joy? Where do you find your joy? Some people really struggle with that. They really struggle with this idea of joy because, well, joy is not happiness, right? Because happiness is is this fleeting thing. It comes and it goes, and it changes as quickly as the wind. Something good happens, I'm happy. Something bad happens, I'm sad. And that's not joy. Joy is more enduring than that. It's more more lasting than that. So what is joy? Where where does this come from? We're going to be talking more about that later, but think for a moment. In your life, where are you finding joy? Is it in Christ? Is it in the one that God has sent to be your Savior, Redeemer, and King? Or is it in other things? Where do you find your joy? Because I'm telling you this, it starts with understanding something about who this God is. If you're struggling to see what the joy of the Lord is in your life... I'm going to suggest you take a look at, well, am I pridefully trying to go about my life in my own way, or am I humbly submitting myself to the God who is above and beyond all things? I'm not trying to accuse anyone of anything, but that's a good place to start in our life. Where's my focus? Is it on myself, or is it upon him? Because I can promise you, he is infinitely greater than anything you or I could know. A passage I want to read for us, Uh, it's going to be up on the screen if you want to read it with me. It's going to be from Job chapter 38. Job, oh, I, yeah, so there's a map there. Uh, basically, that's quite roughly the journey that they would have taken. Now, here we go. This is where we are. We're going to bypass that map. That was my fault. I meant to show that earlier. Sorry, moving on. Job 38, starting in verse 1. This whole book has been about catastrophe upon the life of Job, has been struggle upon struggle. PhD of the School of, of Pain and Suffering belongs to Job. And Job at one point begins, God, why and why? And this is God's response. It says, The Lord answered Job from a whirlwind. Who is, this, or who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them, where where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much, who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb? And as I clothed it with the clouds and wrapped it in, dark, in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. Think about the strength of the sovereign God. Verse 11, I said, this far and no further will you come, speaking to the waves. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to night's wickedness? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you, under, or do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from? Where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you do. You know all this. For you were born before it was all created. And you are so very experienced. For those who don't think God is sarcastic. Ordinary you. Extraordinary God. Ordinary you, but extraordinary God. If you want to understand this joy of the Lord, when we talk about joy to the earth, joy of God has come to the earth. It starts here. Humbly understanding, God, you are infinitely greater than I could ever possibly be. Not just that, but God, you're infinitely greater than I could ever possibly hope to understand or imagine to just close your eyes and attempt to picture the grandeur and greatness of God, you've already made him too small. And these magi from the eastern lands traveled over a thousand miles on bumpy roads, patches of desert, all because they wanted to bow themselves down and worship the one whom God Of eternity past says, this one. He's my king that I've anointed for the earth. He is the one that I've anointed as Messiah for the generations. How remarkable is that? You and I, if we're honest, in our humanity, in the hubris of ourselves and our arrogance, we struggle to admit that God's plan is better than ours. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, I already know God's plan is better than mine. Yes, you do know that, but how often do you choose yours anyway? Humbly laying ourselves down. God, you are so above and beyond. I'm going to submit myself to you, pour myself out before you. Whenever people would come before royalty, right, they usually would come and they would bow down. Do you know why they would bow down before kings? It was the idea of showing honor because it's like they are elevating the king above themselves and trying to get down as low as they can get to show the disparity between the rank of the king and where they belong. If that's us and God, then we should all be like laying on the ground right now, digging a hole to go deeper down. Because of how far and above this God is. Now as our story continues in verse 3. Saw the rose that came to worship him. Verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. Deeply disturbed. because, So long story short, Herod, uh, not a popular king. Um, Very tyrannical. He wasn't even Jewish. He was actually an Edomite. Um, so very unpopular, very always concerned something was going to happen. He was going to lose his authority, lose his power. And now here comes these magi, these wise men saying, Hey, there's a new king. He's like, Oh no. So he's very troubled, deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem. Verse four, he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers and of the religious law. And he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem in Judea? They said. "'For this is what the prophet wrote. "'And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, "'are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. "'For a ruler will come from you "'who will be the shepherd for my people Israel.' "'Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, "'and he learned from them "'the time when the star had first appeared. "'Then he told them, "'Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child.' And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Oh, that's what he wants to do. Verse 9. So after this interview, the wise men went other way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, and it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. I want you to notice that when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Not when they saw the child, not when they saw the Messiah, the king, though there was joy in that moment, but before that moment even happened, before the anticipation of what they were going to see, of who they were going to meet, was enough for them. Just at the star. Because true joy comes through seeking Christ. Right, this, this long journey that would have taken them, we don't know how long for sure it would have taken them to travel, probably a few months. But this journey of traveling, of seeking, all the starting to get to this point, and they see the star and they see where it's settled, and they're like, that's where it is. That's where we're gonna find him. It's there. And the joy that came with there he is! He's going right over there, we're gonna get there. The joy. Depending on the translation, it's going to say some different things. There, F- uh, filled with joy, exceeding joy. It's the idea that it's just bubbling up and just bloop, 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 and comes over, and it's just so much joy. Like you ever see a child when they just can't handle their excitement, and they're like shaking. Okay, get that picture in your head. Filled with joy. Filled with joy, at the idea that there he. Is this journey of seeking him, this journey of longing to meet the king? Now we have a tremendous blessing. The king has already come, he has been born, he has lived, he has died, he has risen again, and one day he'll come again. But for now, we worship a living king and God for thousands of years. The people of God were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And here's another prophecy about it. another prophecy and another prophecy. Okay, when's the next one? Okay, okay, is this the last one? Is it coming? Okay, no, here's another prophecy. Is it coming? Oh, no, here's another prophecy. And waiting and waiting and finally thousands of years. Have gone by from the time of Adam and Eve, first time there was a prophecy of the coming Messiah, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall. From there you have all this history of the beginning of the world, then you have the flood, and then you have Abraham, and then you have Israel, you have all these generations come and gone. Each one seeking, each one longing to see this Messiah and sometimes I fear that we as Christians get so accustomed to the fact that here he is that we lose sight of the wonder and awe that that should inspire in us. Because here he is right before us. He's with us in this space. And we sometimes take that so for granted. These magi see the star. They see it settling. They don't even see christ yet but knowing "Ah, there he is is enough to fill them with joy if you want to see the joy of the lord take shape take hold in your life seek after him seek after him now i'm not talking about spending a 30 30 seconds of your day praying before dinner though it's good to pray thinking god for your dinner And I'm not talking about taking two minutes of your day to read the daily crouton, I mean, daily bread. That's good to read that. It's good to read devotionals. It's good to dive into things. But guys, that's not what this is about. Seeking God is not just having your daily five minutes in the morning. It's not about having your little quiet times here and there. It's about spending your life in pursuit of the majesty on high. So that's not just these little moments we carve out. Though don't get me wrong, those are good. It is good to sit and have intentional time diving into the Word, talking with others. It's good to have that. It is helpful for your spiritual life unquestionably. But it has to go beyond that. Because God's not something that you just add into your life and pepper in here and there. He either is your life or he's not. You don't add him in. God is not this cherry you put on top of the Sunday you call your life. He is the thing that replaced that trash you once thought was delicious, and now, oh, that's what I want. Seeking him with everything. We hold nothing back. In all of my Bibles, I have written, because I do have a lot. My wife makes fun of my Bible collection. But in all of them, In the front, I have written three phrases no relenting, no reserves, and no regrets. Because if you don't relent, you don't hold back. You just keep going on after Christ, no reserve. God, I don't want to hold anything back. There's times when I hold too tightly, and I, and I try to, and I hold things, but God, I don't. I want you to take that. I don't want to hold anything back from you. Because if we live that life where there is no reservations, God, I'm just running after you, where there's no holding back. Then you'll be living a life where there are no regrets. It's not the easiest thing to live that way, right? Because we get trapped in our life, in our world, and our mind, and our whatever. But to make that your practice, your journey as God, I want to surrender this to you. I want to surrender this to you. I want you to become everything. And if that happens in your life, watch how it changes your relationships. Watch how it changes you, how it changes the things in your life. I'm not saying everything magically gets better, but I'm saying you'll be a better husband, You'll be a better mom. You'll be a better friend. You'll be a better everything, personally, relationship. All of that changes as you grow in Christ. Why? Because as you grow in Christ, you change. As you grow in Christ, you grow into the image of Christ more and more. And that's an amazing thing. You want to know where the joy of the Lord comes from. It starts with humbly acknowledging it's not you. Next, seek where it comes from, and that's Christ not from us, it's from him. I think about all the prophets of the Old Testament who constantly are, God, when, 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 right? Peter talks about this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, says this, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, uh, you love him even though you've never seen him. He's talking, with, uh, he's talking with the people, the, the Jews that are out who love Christ. They, they haven't actually seen him. He's come and gone. He's like, you love him, but you haven't seen him. Though you have not seen him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be your, the salvation of your souls. So he's talking to these people. They haven't met him physically, but they're like, hey, you believed in him. You took the promise of Christ, the promise that was given to the prophets years and years and years ago. You took that. You're inheriting that. You accept that. You trust in him. And there is an inexpressible joy that comes with that. There's a blessing with that. And John, when Christ is speaking with his disciples in John 20, verse 29, he says, Jesus told them, you believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Some of us, Talk about, oh man, I wish I could just see Jesus. That would make my my faith so strong. One, there's greater blessing in the fact that we haven't seen him in the flesh and believe. Two, do you understand how great a blessing it is that instead of Jesus in the flesh walking the earth, you get the spirit of God dwelling in you, walking everywhere you go? When Christ was on the earth to talk to him, you had to go and talk to him and sit down with him. You want to see Christ now, you have the spirit of God dwelling inside you. You don't need to go to a spot and talk to him. You can just right where you're at, Jesus. And there he is. What an amazing thing that is. To at any moment to just stop and say, God, I want more of you. Hey, God, I'm struggling here. Do we take advantage of that as the people of God? Some do, some don't. And I feel sorry for those who don't because you are missing out on an amazing intimacy that can be known with Christ when your life is about, oh, this, that, as opposed to, God, I want you, I'm seeking you. You may have heard the expression, oh, that person is so heaven minded, they're of no earthly good. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. There may be people who act all holier than thou and they act, you may see something like that, but I'm telling you, if someone's focus is truly heaven and God, it is not possible to focus too much on that. It's not possible. In fact, the more you focus on that, the more beneficial and fruitful you'll be upon this earth. So that expression is weird to me. So heaven-minded, there are no earthly good. That doesn't exist. Joy of the Lord, seeking Christ, running after him. Sorry, I'm using a remote, and sometimes it takes a second. There there we go. I want to give you this definition of the joy of the Lord. There's a lot of them out there. And I'm not saying this one is right and others are wrong, but as I've, d- 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 as I've dived into the Word, this is the one that I find that I feel like I most agree with. Because happiness comes and goes based on circumstances. There is earthly joy, right? You can have joy in your kids. You can have joy in your job. That's things that are more lasting, more enduring. But if you want to know the depths of true joy, the joy of the Lord, I would define it this way, is a soul-satisfying delight in the person purposes, and practices of God. It is a soul-satisfying delight in the person, purposes, and practices of God. And what does that look like? Person. That means you take joy in who God is. You're seeking Him, who He is. And then the purposes of God. Well, that means it's no longer your will. It's God's. You're seeking His glory, not your own. You're seeking after what He desires. So you're taking delight in who he is. You're taking delight in what he's desiring, his plans, his purposes. And then the practices of God. That's what God does. That's the things of God. So that's your salvation. That's a God who's come to earth, a earth in desperate need of a Savior to become the Savior to proclaim himself as God, to proclaim himself as king, to proclaim himself as the one who sustains all you could ever need. It's a delight in the person, purposes, and practices of who God is. Do you take delight in your salvation? Or do you just let that come and go and eh, I'm saved? Do you take delight in the majesty of the God who spoke creation into existence that he is your father your friend the one who desires relationship with you do you take delight in that or has that just become status quo for you do you see the kingdom of god advance do you see where the missionaries spread the gospel where friends proclaim an evangelist do you see these great things of god and is it just huh? or does that excite your heart the joy of the lord Finding delight, that soul satisfying delight. Now, here's one of the amazing things about the joy of the Lord. Other things, joy in your spouse, in your child, happiness, these things come and go based on circumstances. You may take great delight in your child, but something happens in that dynamic and that relationship severs, or that can come and go, but the joy of the Lord, that cannot leave. Why? Because God doesn't leave. God doesn't change. God is who he is. He never changes. Who he is, what he desires, what he does, these things stay eternal. So if you find in yourself, oh, I'm just not experiencing the joy of the Lord lately, it's not because he's changed. It's not because he's gone anywhere. It's because you're choosing to seek your joy elsewhere. If you're wanting the joy of the Lord, it only comes through seeking him. His purposes his person, his practices, seeking after who he is. If you think of the Old Testament prophets, if you look at me up on the screen, it says this from 1 Peter 1. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about. When they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you, they wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's sufferings and his great glory afterward. right? The prophets are being told, hey, amazing things are coming. The Messiah is coming. He's going to suffer. He's going to rise. And the prophets are like, oh, this is awesome. He's coming. When? And they didn't get to see it. We do. Verse 12, and they were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. That's you and I, those of us in the church age. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preach in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice this last part. It is so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Did you catch what that is? It's so wonderful even the angels are eagerly watching waiting for these things. Why? Well, angels don't get to be redeemed. Angels never fell. The ones that fell, they're demons. They don't get to be redeemed. Angels don't will never fully understand this idea of salvation redemption. They don't get to experience it. So they just look on like, oh, "Do you see that one? Do you see that one over there? Do you see that one?" Because it's an amazing thing to them. The angels look in oh! How easy is it for us to bypass the miracle of our own salvation? The miracle of God taking that dead stone of a heart inside and transforming it alive. It is truly an amazing, amazing thing. Now we're going to move on to look with me, verse 11, chapter two, Matthew verse 11. They entered the house and saw uh, the child with his mother. Again, child, he was a toddler here. The word there is for like a young child. If it was a baby, they would have used a different word. And so Mary, with a mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The joy of the Lord inspires worship. The first thing they do, this moment they see Him and they just want to worship Him. Now, we don't know all the ways they worshiped. Did they sing a song? I don't know, maybe. Did they, I don't know, have a meal together? I don't know. We we don't know what all they did. We know this that in worshiping Him, they worshiped Him because of three things. He was given three gifts. This first one, gold, that's a gift you give to a king. You don't just go over. I know today that when you have someone has a birthday party, you just show up and like, hey, here's 20 bucks. Happy birthday. Here's a gift card to Starbucks. Back then, if you're showing up with gold as a gift, that's not a thing, right? You give gold to kings. You give gold to those who have conquered. You give gold to someone significant. So for you and I, do we worship him as our king? Is he king? Is he lord? Truth is, he is king and lord over your life, but do you follow him as such? Or do you still claim that throne for yourself? Because I hate to break it to you, but if he's not lord over your life, then I kind of have to question if he's in your life. Because the God of the Bible When he comes into your life, when he takes hold of your life, not saying we're perfect, not saying there's not seasons of rebellion, but when he comes into your life, you're different. You are different. The things you desire change. And one of the biggest things that change is you begin to see, God, you are king. You above all else. And you begin to desire that and cherish that in your heart in a way that you never could have understood before. If someone tried explaining it to you, perhaps some of you who came to Christ later in life have had that experience. Someone trying to explain to you how awesome it is to submit your life to God and to follow him. You're like, what? That's crazy. And then you become a Christian and you're like, oh, I get it. It's one of the amazing things because... Trying to explain what it's like to know and love and follow God is like trying to explain to someone how to swim watching YouTube. It doesn't work well. But once they jump in the water, then they begin to see. Next thing, they worship him as king, they worship him as a priest. So where's that coming from? They give him frankincense. Frankincense was an incense, it was a spice excuse me, that was used, and they would burn it. It would be burnt commonly uh, as a part of the incense going up. You'd burn it, it was representative of prayers of the saints going up into heaven. You would also burn it as you'd mix it with oil, and you'd burn it with some of the offerings of the Old Testament. Well, why would you do that? Well, back then, a priest had a very specific job. The priest's job was to give glory to God through interceding for God's people, and bringing reconciliation for God's people. Because back then, you needed to use sacrifices. And you needed to do all these different things in order, like, okay, I sinned. So I do a, a sin offering. I do a guilt offering. And the priest's job was to administer these things. Christ is our king. He's the one who's over-sovereign over us. Christ is also our high priest. As our high priest, he is the one who intercedes for us. The one who reconciles our relationship with God. They worshiped him as priest, giving him the, this frankincense, this gift of well, really something that was used in the temple. Now, I would love, we're running out of time, so we're, I'm just going to bypass this a passage. I would love for you to look it up some, at some point um, in Hebrews. Uh, we might get a chance to talk about it. But we're going to look at this last thing. Worship him as fulfillment of prophecy. Now, where's that coming from? The last gift. You know what myrrh is, what myrrh was used for? It was a burial spice you would use it because back then someone dies pretty quickly they start to smell and so you would have this pungent myrrh that you would wrap in the, in the wrappings you would mix into the wrappings so that when people came to mourn they didn't come and go Ooh, and get knocked over by the stench of rot but they would come in and the myrrh would mask it at least for a while so it was a, it was a funeral spice great thing to give at a baby shower but yet they worship him as king. They worship him, declaring him as a priest. And this last gift declares him as the fulfillment of the prophecy because he came to die. Jesus came to die. That's why he was born. We often get distracted by little baby Jesus in a manger and forget that little baby Jesus in the manger didn't stay little baby Jesus in a manger but grew up to be the one hanging from the cross. Imagine being his parents, knowing that you're raising the Messiah, that you're raising the one who is going to take away the sins of the world. This little child. And so the, these I give him a gift of myrrh, this burial spice, because it is through his life and then death and resurrection that comes our salvation this little beautiful child you know he's going to grow up he's going to it's an amazing thing so these three gifts are given are really kind of quite prophetic so when you and I look at this king when you and I look at this child at christmas time Understand the greatness of who he is. He is your king, the person of who he is. Understand the purposes of who he is, right? His purpose is to glorify himself through reconciling us, through restoring us in relationship to him, through interceding for us. And recognize who he is as he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah who would come, the Lamb who would come to take away the sin of the world. This Christmas, if you want to really dive into the joy of the Lord and have it be more than just we get together and it's family and it's fun, humble yourself, seek him, and worship him for who he is, what he desires, and what he has done. Gonna read, we are going to read this last passage in Hebrews, and this will be our, the last thing. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priests stand and ministers before the altar and day after day offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, Offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Forever made perfect those who are being made holy. If that, that right there, that Jesus Christ, our King, our High Priest, our sacrifice in our place, By faith, when you come to Christ, he's for all time. His sacrifice has cleansed you, made you holy and perfect. If that doesn't give you reason for joy and reason to run after him and seek him, nothing else will. His joy. Not our joy, his joy. The title of this message is his joy because it's his. It comes from him. And it is gifted to us when we seek him. So I pray, my prayer for you this Christmas is that it's not about the pageantry. It's not about Christmas Eve services and family gatherings and those are all good things. But that it's about taking the intentional time to seek him, to know him, to find your joy in him. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much for all that you do, all that you have done and will do. There is nothing greater than you. God, I I confess how easy it is for me to lose sight of the wonder of who you are. God, let our joy come only from you. Show us what that is, what true joy really is. Because God, There is no greater thing than you. So let us take our delight in that. In your name, amen.